Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And today we're going to do something a little bit new, at least new uh, since Tracy and I have been on the podcast. Past hosts have featured interviews with people with interesting historical stories to tell, but this is our first go-round on this one. So we mentioned not long ago that we wanted to cover a few museums and talk about their histories. And today we're sharing the first of a two-parter. It's an interview with Dr. Annie Polland of the Lower East Side Tenement Museum. And this particular subject came up not long after we had mentioned during uh, a recording that we wanted to start telling stories about museums at some point. And so we got really excited about this amazingly layered history to the Tenement Museum and the building there, uh, as well as its incredible mission to preserve and present the stories of immigrants that in many ways sort of tell the story of the U.S. as an immigrant nation. So we're going to hop right into that interview. So today we have with us uh, Dr. Annie Pollan, who is the Senior Vice President for Programs and Education at the Lower East Side Tenement Museum. Did I get all that correct? Yes, you did. Perfect. Uh, and this is such an incredibly cool museum space with such a really uh, fabulous sort of history of its own. And there are so many wonderful stories connected to it that we're just going to jump right in and kind of get the full scoop on this really wonderful historical landmark. So first off, Annie, will you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up in your position at the Tenement Museum? Sure. Um, I think what brought me here was what brought me to New York. So I came to New York initially to study history. And so I got my PhD in history at Columbia University. And while I was there working on my coursework and my dissertation, I got a job with a company called Big Onion Walking Tours, which is a wonderful company that organizes historical walking tours of many New York neighborhoods. So I started working for that company, and I gave the first assignment that I had was to work on the Lower East Side Tour. And it was actually run in conjunction with the Lower East Side Tenement Museum. So I came, and at this point it was like the late 90s, and I came down to give a walking tour. Um, and I'm actually looking right now at the window at the corner of where I started, which is right across the street from the Tenement Museum. And it was such a wonderful experience to walk through the city um, to look at the buildings and be able to tell their history. And I think that combination of history, the built environment, and the enthusiasm of the people on the tour made me realize um, how important public history was. So I finished my dissertation, and I enjoyed that research, but knew that what I really wanted to do was rather than work in an academic setting, work in a place where history could come to life and, and, and a place where I could kind of share that history with many more people than I would if I had stayed in an academic track. So the Lower East Side Tenement Museum, of course, is a perfect place to do that because the history is so rich, it's so layered, it works off the built environment, and um, it attracts so many people from all around the country and the world. So it's really the perfect place for me in many ways. So history is like in your heart. That's your whole background. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Love it. Uh, and the museum <laughs> itself is really the brainchild of one woman, although many hands have, of course, gone into making it sort of the incredible resource it is today. Uh, but could you tell us a little bit about Ruth Abram and how she came to develop this concept? 
Well, sure. I mean, what I'm, what I'll tell you is probably what other people, you know, would be able to tell you too. I, I wasn't here when the museum got started in 1988. So what I'm telling you in some ways is the, you know, the, the founding story that I've been told. Um, but she really was, or she really is a remarkable woman. And she actually, and a colleague, Anita Jacobson, were the two women that we consider the founders of the museum. Um, they were working together, and they were looking for a tenement to tell the story of immigration, which in and of itself was an absolutely radical thing to do, right? To say that an old building that, you know, people were abandoning, that should be the site to study history, you know, when most people are studying history in huge museums, or they're studying history in a, a president's former home or an industrialist former home, to say that an old tenement is a site of history is a radical thing. So they had this radical idea, and they were looking for a tenement, and, and I think the story goes that they had almost given up hope because the tenements they found were already rehabbed or they were um, they had changed so much over time, and they were looking at that point for a storefront to start telling the story, and they went to this building to see about renting a storefront, and this was 97 Orchard Street, and when they asked to use the restroom, they saw that the restroom was in the hall, um, and it was a sign to them that the building hadn't been updated since the 1901 housing law. So they realized that they had this real time capsule, a place where they could tell many layers and many um, elements of the immigrant story. So that's the kind of founding story that's been passed down and that we tell on our tours. But Ruth herself, I think, was trained in, um, was interested in in history. And um, what I can say is her dynamism and her creativity still kind of, I mean, it just is amazing to me to think of how people could have had the idea to do this in the 1980s. I just love that it's uh, a piece of history. It's kind of right in line with the things we always talk about, uh, which is sort of the history that you don't hear. You know, as Mm -hmm. you said, we sort of tend to think of studying history in sort of amazing and hallowed halls. And we but history is happening everywhere all the time to people of all levels of society. So I sort of love that idea that it's it's the real history of real people and it's not something glamorized. It's not someone that is famous that you've heard of, but that doesn't make their stories any less important. Absolutely. I think that's at the heart of the whole museum and its mission. Um, one of the things we do sometimes is ask visitors who come, you know, what are other historic houses you've been to or give me some examples of historic homes and they'll inevitably say Monticello or they'll say the mansions at Newport or they'll say Mark Twain's house or Edith Wharton's home or, you know, basically giving us the names of very famous wealthy or um, political people. Um, And so that this continues to be a surprise to people in a way that exactly what you were just saying, that ordinary people shape history and should be the focus of our attention, that still is a somewhat of a radical idea in the public sphere, even though historians and social historians have been really talking about this, you know, since the 1960s and even before. Um, But it's taken, it's still because so much of what we encounter, let's say on the History Channel or or things like this, is is in some ways a history that still focuses on military battles or political personages. I mean, just kind of things that seem out of touch. But what we specialize in here are the ordinary stories of people who lived here. And actually, when you look at those ordinary stories, they really become extraordinary. So I think what we're able to do 
um, best is be in a site where people lived and be able to show that people who would have never thought that anyone would be thinking about them really did extraordinary things. That kind of brings me to my next question, uh, because since you are actually housed in what was a tenement, you have kind of an interesting layout in that it's an apartment building um, and you're restoring parts of it, but not all of it. Could you kind of explain to us how that's laid out and what sort of the mission is in terms of just the structure and how your restoration efforts are kind of spearheaded and project managed? Absolutely. So the building is five stories with a basement level as well. So the basement level was initially a space for stores. Um, and we've restored that basement level to show a saloon that was there in the 1870s, um, actually as early as 1864. Um, and then above that, you have essentially four, uh, I'm sorry, five floors each with four apartments. Um, when the building was first built, the running water and the bathrooms were outside in the rear yard, and we've also recreated that rear yard. Um, in 1901, the building changed because of a, a new law, which was incredibly important, and at that point, the landlord had to add two toilets per floor. So the layouts change from floor to floor, but they also change over time. But essentially, what you have on the second, third, fourth, and fifth floor are four apartments with two toilets um, and one hallway. On the first floor, you have a longer hallway. Um, when it was originally built, there were four apartments. Over time, after that 1901 housing law and the landlord made changes, the first two of those apartments were converted into storefronts. So it's tricky because the building changed over time. But essentially, you have a um, five-story building with a basement level. It's about um, 25 feet wide and 66 feet deep. Um, and the whole width of the lot, right, is built with this building. So there's very little yard space. And that, of course, influences um, the amount of light that the building receives. Well, and my understanding, I don't have a, a huge, massive grasp on the 1901 tenement housing law. But prior to that, they wouldn't have had indoor lighting either, correct? Absolutely. Right, right, right. So or none, none that the... Um, landlord would have provided. So when the building was first built, there were very few laws um, governing any kind of requirements for lighting or for running water and so on. And therefore, when the building was built in 1863, um, there was no running water. The bathrooms were outside. The only source of water was outside, and there was no lighting in the central areas. Individual tenants would bring in their own form of lighting, um, but there was nothing provided by the landlord, and that was fairly typical. So I can imagine some of those hallway trips to the bathroom at night were really, really dark. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost hard to imagine. And, and one of the things our educators do so well, though, is make the visitors feel like they're back in time through their storytelling power and through the details they're able to do through description. But one of the things we are able to do when people are assembled in our front hallway is we have one of the visitors switch off the light switch. So there goes the electric lighting and it becomes very dark, even at like 10 in the morning or 11 in the morning when the sun is shining outside, you see how dark that hallway would be. And then you can start to appreciate and start to imagine what that would have been like at midnight or 10 p.m. I mean, just how dark the hallway was. Then when you layer that with the kind of um, 
what people would be doing as they went through the hall. For example, you'd be having to go outside to get a bucket of water. So going through a dark hallway, going up darkened staircases, carrying a bucket of water, hoping you're not going to run into someone, hoping you're not going to spill the water. I mean, the kind of actions in that darkened space are, are really amazing. When you're restoring each of the floor, am I correct that you're not restoring everything? You're purposely keeping some things as is. Yes. Yeah. So um, most historic houses preserve or restore, actually. Most historic houses restore their building to look as it would have in one particular period, one particular you know period of uh, extreme historical significance, let's say. The Tenement Museum is different because the founders decided and the people who worked with them in the very beginning realized that rather than restoring it just to one moment, they should be able to take different apartments and take them to different moments. And so when we restore apartments, it, we're going to restore them differently um, in part due to what time period we're in. So an apartment, for example, that we're restoring to be the 1860s is not going to have running water in it. But an apartment that we're going to restore to be 1915 would have running water on it. Um, so that doing that requires a lot of research in the actual building, looking at when wall partitions shifted, um, looking at wallpaper layers, looking at paint layers. And so we bring in people who specialize in all of these areas to do analysis of the building, um, of the building elements. And that helps inform the decisions we make with how we're going to restore a particular apartment to a particular time period. Also included in the kind of areas and uh, historical record of significance would be what we term our ruin apartments. And so we actually preserve rooms to look as they did when Ruth and Anita discovered the building in the 1980s and the upper floors hadn't been used at all. Um, so no one had updated them since the mid-1930s. So we preserve apartments that look as they did in the 1980s after no one had lived there for 50 years. And we call those ruins because that moment of discovery we feel is important for our visitors to understand. And that's our kind of home. That's our base. We always start with an apartment that looks like that before we recreate them. So there's a way in which um, visitors who come to our museum not only travel through time simply by crossing a hallway and walking from one apartment to another, but they also see a kind of before and after process in a way. That's so cool. Um, and that's yeah, ongoing. You guys, crazy. <laughs> and that's ongoing. You guys are still in the process of renovating the whole building, correct? Yeah, well, we still, we're always doing research into the building. And then the other thing that we're really working on is, is preservation and making sure that, um, the building is stable and making sure that we're able to repair things that need to be repaired. But that requires analysis and that requires work and that requires a work plan and that also requires um, money. So everything we do is a kind of combination of study, of fundraising, of, um, of studying schedules to kind of see when work can be done. Which I imagine is a huge balancing act. Um, mm -hmm. Going back, kind of circling back to what we talked about at the top of the interview about kind of the importance of looking at history as it was happening to regular people. Um, I'm curious mm -hmm. just for your take on what you think is really kind of the, the big important reason that we should preserve immigration history specifically. And that's, I mean, it's such a, a sort of American thing to talk about, even though I think people don't always fully have a, a big picture sense of what all 
kind of took place in the immigration realm. Uh, but also, I think as part of a global human story, it's pretty important to think about how people have moved from place to place and made their way. But I'm curious what your take is yeah. on all that. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating story. I think that there's immigration history is so important because for many people, it's very accessible in this country. So we're not a country where, mo- you know, in this country, most people have not been here for 20 generations. We're a country in which a lot of people can trace their immigration um, story. So someone might come to our museum whose great-grandparent immigrated or great-great-grandparent immigrated or grandparent or parent. And so, we, you know, this is a country, no matter where you live in this country, we have an intimate connection to immigration. Um, we have photos of immigrants who came over who are in our family. So I think that the immigration story is really accessible to us because we have immigrant stories in our own families. On another level, even if you don't have or you don't know of someone in your family who immigrated, the immigration story is a saga and a journey, a personal narrative and story that I think has so much resonance. The idea simply of someone picking up, um, leaving a place where they've been for most of their life and journeying to a new place to start all over again is is really an exciting narrative that, you know, some people play this out if they've simply moved from one state to another and you have a sense of what movement does and how movement reshapes your life and reshapes the way you think, um, you know, again, just moving from state to state or city to city. So the people can take that experience too and use it to relate to immigration. So I think immigration is important because a lot of us experience it in some way or another. Um, and I also think that one of the things we find at our museum is that the immigrant story becomes not just a story of particular groups of people who come at particular moments in time, although it is that, and, and we get into the details of that. But the immigrant story and the immigration story is also a lens on what does it mean to be American. All the people who went to 97 Orchard, whether they were Irish, whether they were Italian, whether they were German, whether they were East European Jewish, all of those people and all of those groups, once they got here, had to grapple with what it meant to be American. What does it mean to raise American children? What does it mean to send your kids to new schools? What does it mean um, to have American politics shape your life or the American economy shape your life? They all had to grapple with that. So that moment, I think, where we can kind of look at America from the perspective of immigrants gives us a real insight on what America was at a, at a particular moment. So we might be a museum of immigration, but I think we're also very much a museum of what it meant to be American. Uh, and You mentioned in that answer the sort of many different backgrounds that people came from that lived there in the building at various points in time. Can you give us a picture of what the neighborhood was really like when this was actually a functioning, thriving residence and how it kind of evolved through the decades between when it opened in the 1860s and then when it shut down kind of abruptly in the 1930s? Mm -hmm. So just as the building itself changed over time to meet a series of needs and laws and and improvements, the neighborhood itself is changing. And so the building's changes are, of course, a response to changes in the neighborhood more broadly. When the building was first built in 1863, this neighborhood was not known as the Lower East Side. It was known as Klein Deutschland or Little Germany. And it was called that um, because the um, neighborhood in the city was a, a very German neighborhood and city. So what we now call the Lower East Side, um, what was then called Klein Deutschland, was actually the fifth largest German-speaking city 
um, in the world, right? And and New York was the third largest German-speaking city in the world after Berlin and Vienna. So when 97 Orchard was built in 1863, it was in the midst of this kind of thriving, bustling German neighborhood where you would hear German on the streets, where you would see German signs, where you could buy German sausage and you could buy German lager beer at 97 Orchard at Schneider Saloon. Um, you could get a German newspaper. You'd hear German music emanating from the um, from the saloons and from the beer gardens that were in the neighborhood. So it was very much a German neighborhood. And of course, the people who lived at 97 Orchard reflected that German population. As the decades went on, um, Germans moved uptown. Um, they moved to a neighborhood called Yorkville, or they moved to Brooklyn, they moved to New Jersey, and new immigrants arrived in the neighborhood. Um, and these were immigrants that weren't that excited about um, German sausages or German lager beer because these were East European Jews who were going to bring their own customs, their own religion, um, their own food ways to the neighborhood. They also came in much larger numbers and settled in uh, rapid um rapid time period in the 1880s and 1890s so that this neighborhood is not only a heavily immigrant neighborhood, but it's the most densely populated neighborhood um, in the country. And some people at the time even argued the world. So you have an extremely crowded neighborhood. And as more people are moving in and as time goes by, the tenement itself becomes much more um, dilapidated. And so what was once built as a home to house a family of four, you know, a tenement apartment, maybe have four people, maybe five people at the most, is now having at least five or six people in a 325-square-foot space, but as many as 10 or 11 or 12 in 1900. So extremely um, crowded conditions. If you walk down Orchard Street, it would be very crowded. You'd um, be contending with other people going every which way on the streets. There were pushcart peddlers who um, were selling their wares on carts with wheels. Um, They could be selling pickles. They could be selling fruits, they could be selling old shoes, they could be selling spectacles, basically everything you needed could be had on these pushcarts, which is very, you know, convenient for the housewives on Orchard Street, but it was very inconvenient if you were on your way to work or on your way to school and you were late, <laughs> just because the streets were just filled with people. That almost sounds um, like so, uh, the, like when you see a movie set where they've called central casting to like throw a bunch of people into a quote period piece. It sounds almost yes, like that. That's what, so. I mean, I feel like that's like the consummate <laughs> crowd in a way. Like that's the, to, and they did the, you know, they come, uh, they went, Oh, what was the name of the show? I can't remember. There was, they actually set up a film set here and it was incredible because they made Orchard Street look as it would have I think you know in the 1890s or 1900s and they had the people in costume so it was this really kind of interesting thing where we you know who try to recreate the time in our apartment or in our tenement building in our museum were able to see what the street might have looked like with all the actors but even then I still think there would have been more people on the street than they were able to amass. Um, I should also add that in 1900, when you would have all these pushcart peddlers on the streets were so densely populated, um, the signs would now would no longer be in German, but they would be in Yiddish and English. And the the language you'd hear on the streets would be Yiddish and maybe a little Italian, and you'd hear English, although the English would often be heavily accented.
so then post 1900, it shifted, I presume, some more for a few decades. And then can you tell us about kind of the lead up to it suddenly ending as an apartment building? Sure, absolutely. So um, in the 19, even as early as the 1900s, um, especially when the subway was built in 1904 and some of the bridges were open, the Williamsburg Bridge in 1903 and the Manhattan Bridge in 1908, um, Lower East Siders were anxious to get out of the Lower East Side because of the conditions that I described, because of the crowded conditions. So people were leaving, but they were always being replaced by new waves of immigrants. And by the 19-teens, you start to have um, – more Italians moving into um, what we call the Lower East Side and into Orchard Street. So in 1910, 1920, our, our building becomes more Italian. But in 1924, you have a major change because a law is passed, um, a federal law, that for the first time is using um, national quotas um, and makes it very difficult to get into the country. Immigrants can no longer get into the country, it's very hard to get into the country if you're coming from Southern Europe or you're coming from Eastern Europe. If you're coming from Asia, you can't come in at all. So we kind of, in 1924, this country closes its gates um, and it becomes difficult to get here. And that has huge consequences um, and huge, you know, ramifications for the country and obviously for those who would have wanted to come. But what it means for the Lower East Side is that for the first time, you have a decrease in population um, between 1920 and 1930. Um, I think the population decreases um, by, um, I think in 1920, you have 360,000 people living here. And by the end of the decade, you have um, 160,000. So a huge decrease in population. And then you, by 1935, by 1934, 1935, our landlord we know only has seven tenants out of the the 20 apartments that he could be letting out. And so um, in um, 1929 and then in 1934, laws are passed that require um, staircases to be um, fireproof. And the staircases and the hallways at 97 Orchard are made of wood, and they still are made of wood because the landlord at that time decided it's not worth investing in the building in this way to bring it up to code. It's easier to evict the residents who are still here and just use the space as as a store, the first and the second floor as store spaces. Um, And so in 1935, um, he evicts the residents. And so then at that point, with the exception of one woman, Fanny um, Rosenthal, Fanny Rogoshevsky, who Americanizes her name to Rosenthal, she's left in the building for a few more years as a caretaker. But for all intents and purposes, in um, 1935, the building is emptied of its residents. And so what's really interesting to me is that it stayed that way for for 50 years, still being rented out as a storefront, but no one was touching any of the, those other floors. Well, I mean, it is surprising in a way, right? But in to put your to put ourselves in the mind frames of people who would be living here in the 1930s, who would want to live in a tenement right. in the 1940s? Why would you want to live in a tenement? You can get better housing now in Brooklyn or in the Bronx or in Queens. So. Why stay on the Lower East Side unless you really, really have to? So there isn't as much a demand for housing, hence there's less rent, and so the, that's why the landlords aren't investing in the spaces. 
And they made a time capsule accidentally. <laughs> exactly. Maybe it was all on purpose. <laughs> if we could go back in time, maybe the landlord was thinking, you know, <laughs> if I seal this up, it'll be ripe for a museum in 50 years. Yeah, exactly. I've had 50. I'm picturing the, the sort of Mr. Burns hand clasping going, I bet in 50 years. So now that we've gotten to the point in the story where the tenement closed and left kind of a time capsule for people to come back to later, we're going to cliffhang you just a little bit. In the next episode, we'll talk about some of the specific residents who lived in the tenement while it was still a residence. And we'll also talk about some of the programs and ongoing work that the museum is doing today. And I think Holly has some listener mail for us as well. I do. Uh... This is from our listener, Andrew, and he says, Hello, mesdames. The entire family loves the podcast. He has two kids that are, that are ages 7 and 10, uh, and then two adult kids, <laughs> which are him and his wife, I presume. He says, I recall many, many years ago reading about how Ms. Brumbach, who was, that was the uh, original name of Katie Sandwina before she took her stage name, uh, how Ms. Brumbach had defeated Sandow. If you recall from that episode, she challenged Eugene Sandow to uh, a lifting contest, and it was really quite uh, preposterous on the surface, but in fact, she beat him. And uh, Andrew goes on, the writer of the article speculated that Ms. Brumbach and her father knew exactly what they were doing when they slowly increased the weight and did multiple lifts in rapid succession. Ms. Brumbach was in tip-top physical shape. She was not only strong, she also had amazing stamina. Sandow became fatigued and he was not able to lift the 300 pound weight. Sorry, I don't recall the source. It was many years back when we had the, when we had deep discussions of such things in the dorm hallway. Or did I dream it? Uh, that's an interesting thing that I hadn't thought about, sort of the, uh, the strategy of that lifting contest. Oh yeah. And how she was, uh, for any listeners that either missed it or just need a quick refresh, they were lifting in slowly, incrementally increasing weights. So if she had been working on her stamina that entire time, she probably wasn't getting worn out from all of these lifts, these successive lifts. Whereas if Sandow had been working strictly on strength and less on muscle stamina, he may have uh, worn himself out a little earlier in the competition. Pretty fascinating stuff. Uh, if you would like to write to us and share your knowledge, whether it's imagined in a dorm hallway or the real deal, uh, that could be a, a real deal, but he's not positive that Andy. Uh, you can write to us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also connect with us on facebook.com slash history, on Twitter at history, at mistinhistory.tumblr.com, on pinterest.com slash history, and uh, you can visit us at Spreadshirt at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com if you would like to purchase goodies. If you want to follow up and do some of your own research about the Tenement Museum, you can find them at www.tenement.org and on Twitter at Tenement Museum. If you want to do a little bit of research on uh, the topic that we talked about today, you can go to our parent site, How Stuff Works, type in the word immigration in the search bar, and you will get How Immigration Works as one of the articles. It will give you some additional information on immigration, uh, not just in the U.S., but throughout the world. Uh, you should also visit us at our home on the web, which is mistinhistory.com, where you will find show notes, uh, an archive of all of our episodes, and the occasional blog post. And we hope you do visit us at mistinhistory.com and our parent company, HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs>